This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kelsey Molino. Miss Map by E. F. Benson. Chapter 5, Part 2. It was still dark when he awoke, but the square of his window was visible against the blackness, and he concluded that though it was not morning yet, it was getting on for morning, which seemed a pity. As he turned over onto his side, his hand came in contact with his coat, instead of a sheet, and he became aware that he had all his clothes on. Then, as with a crash of cymbals and the beating of a drum in his brain, the events of the evening before leaped into reality and significance. In a few hours now, arrangements would have been made for a deadly encounter. His anger was gone, his whiskey was gone, and in particular his courage was gone. He expressed all this compendiously by moaning, Oh, God! He struggled to a sitting position, and lit a match at which he kindled his candle. He looked for his watch beside it, but it was not there. What could have happened? Then he remembered that it was in its accustomed place in his waistcoat pocket. A consultation of it, followed by holding it to his ear, only revealed the fact that it had stopped at half-past five. With the lucidity that was growing brighter in his brain, he concluded that this stoppage was due to the fact that he had not wound it up. It was after half-past five then, but how much later only the lords of time knew time which bordered so closely on eternity. He felt that he had no use whatever for eternity, but that he must not waste time. Just now, that was far more precious. From somewhere in the cosmic consciousness there came to him a thought, namely, that the first train to London started at half-past six in the morning. It was a slow train, but it got there, and in any case it went away from Tilling. He did not trouble to consider how that thought came to him. The important point was that it had come. Coupled with that was the knowledge that it was now an undiscoverable number of minutes after half-past five. There was a Gladstone bag under his bed. He had brought it back from the clubhouse only yesterday after that game of golf which had been so full of disturbances and wet stockings, but which now wore the shimmering security of peaceful, tranquil days long past. How little, so he thought to himself, as he began swiftly storing shirts, ties, collars, and other useful things into his bag had he appreciated the sweet amenities of life, its pleasant conversations and companionships, its topped drives and mushrooms and incalculable incidents. Now they wore a glamour and a preciousness that was bound up with life itself. He starved for more of them, not knowing while they were his how sweet they were. The house was not yet astir, when ten minutes later he came downstairs with his bag. He left on his sitting-room table, where it would catch the eye of his housemaid, a sheet of paper on which he wrote called away, he shuddered as he traced the words. Forward no letters. We'll communicate. Somehow the telegraphic form seemed best to suit the urgency of the situation. Then very quietly he let himself out of his house. He could not help casting an apprehensive glance at the windows of his quondam friend and prospective murderer. To his horror, he observed that there was a light behind the blind of the major's bedroom, and pictured him writing to his seconds. He wondered who the seconds were going to be, or polishing him up his pistols. All the rumors and hints of the major's duels and affairs of honor which he had rather scorned before, not wholly believing them, poured like a red torrent into his mind, and he found that now he believed them with a passionate sincerity. Why had he ever attempted, and with such small success, to call this fire-eater a hippopotamus? The gale of the night before had abated, and thick chilly rain was falling from the sullen sky as he tiptoed down the hill. Once around the corner, and out of sight of the duelist's house, he broke into a limping run, which was accelerated by the sound of an engine whistle from the station. 
it was mental suspense of the most agonizing kind not to know how long it was after his watch had stopped that he had awoke and the sound of that whistle followed by several short puffs of steam might prove to be the six-thirty bearing away to london on business or pleasure its secure and careless pilgrims splashing through puddles lopsidedly weighted by his bag with his mackintosh flapping around his legs he gained the sanctuary of the waiting-room and booking-office which was lighted by a dim expiring lamp and scrutinized the face of the murky clock with a sob of relief he saw that he was in time he was indeed in exceptionally good time for he had a quarter of an hour to wait an anxious internal debate followed as to whether or not he should take a return ticket optimism that is to say the hope that he would return to tilling in peace and safety before the six months for which the ticket was available inclined him to the larger expense but in these disquieting circumstances it was difficult to be optimistic and he purchased a first-class single for on such a morning and on such a journey he must get what comfort he could from looking-glasses padded seats and colored photographs of places of interest on the line he formed no vision at all of the feature that was a dark well into which it was dangerous to peer there was no bright speck in its unplumable depths unless major flint died suddenly without revealing the challenge he had sent last night and the promptitude with which its recipient had disappeared rather than face his pistol he could not frame any grouping of events which would make it possible for him to come back to tilling again for he would either have to fight and this he was quite determined not to do or be pointed at by the finger of scorn as the man who would refuse to do so and this was nearly as unthinkable as the other bitterly he blamed himself for having made a friend and worse that an enemy of one so obsolete and old-fashioned as to bring dueling into modern life as far as he could be glad of anything he was glad that he had taken a single not a return ticket he turned his eyes away from the blackness of the feature and let his mind dwell on the hardly less murky past then throwing up his hands he buried his face in them with a hollow groan by some miserable forgetfulness he had left the challenge on his chimney-piece where his housemaid would undoubtedly find and read it that would explain his absence far better than the telegraphic instructions he had left on his table there was no time to go back for it now even if he could have faced the risk of being seen by the major and in an hour or two the whole story by withers janet etc would be all over tilling it was no use then thinking of the future nor of the past and in order to anchor himself to the world at all and preserve his sanity he had to confine himself to the present the minutes long though each tarried were slipping away and provided his train was punctual the passage of five more of these laggards would seem safe the newsboy took down the shutters of his stall a porter quenched the expiring lamp and puffin began to listen for the rumble of the approaching train it stayed three minutes here if up to time it would be in before a couple more minutes had passed there came from the station yard outside the sound of heavy footsteps running some early traveller like himself was afraid of missing the train the door burst open and streaming with rain and panting for breath major flint stood at the entry puffin looked wildly round to see whether he could escape still perhaps unobserved on to the platform but it was too late for their eyes met in that instant of abject terror two things struck puffin one was that the major looked at the open door behind him as if meditating retreat the second that he carried a gladstone bag simultaneously major flint spoke if indeed that reverberating thunder of scornful indignation can be called speech ha i guessed right then he roared i guessed sir that you might be meditating flight and i in fact i came down to see whether you were running away i was right you are a coward captain puffin but relieve your mind sir major flint will not demean himself to fight with a coward puffin gave one long sigh of relief and then standing in front of his own gladstone bag in order to conceal it burst into a cackling laugh 
Indeed, he said, and why, Major, was it necessary for you to pack a gladstone bag in order to stop me from running away? I'll tell you what has happened. You were running away, and you know it. I guessed you would. I came to stop you, you, you quaking runaway. Your wound troubled you, hey? Didn't want another, hey? There was an awful pause, broken by the entry from behind the major of the outside porter, panting under the weight of a large portmanteau. "'You'd had to take your portmanteau, too,' observed Puffin witheringly, "'in order to stop me. That's a curious way of stopping me. You're a coward, sir, but go home. You're safe enough. This will be a fine story for tea-parties.' Puffin turned from him in scorn, still concealing his own bag. Unfortunately, the flap of his coat caught it, precariously perched on the bench, and it bumped to the ground. "'What's that?' said Major Flint. They stared at each other for a moment, and then simultaneously burst into peals of laughter. The train rumbled slowly into the station, but neither took the least notice of it, and only shook their heads and broke out again when the station-master urged them to take their seats. The only thing that had power to restore Captain Puffin to gravity was the difficulty of getting the money for his ticket refunded, while the departure of the train with his portmanteau in it did the same for the Major. The events of that night and morning, as may easily be imagined, soon supplied Tilling with one of the most remarkable conundrums that had ever been forced upon its notice. Puffin's housemaid, during his absence at the station, found and read not only the notice intended for her eyes, but the challenge which he had left on the chimney-piece. She conceived it to be her duty to take it down to Miss Gashley, his cook, and while they were putting the bloodiest construction on these inscriptions, their conference was interrupted by the return of Captain Puffin in the highest spirits, who, after a vain search for the challenge, was quite content, as its purport was no longer fraught with danger and death, to suppose that he had torn it up. Mrs. Gashley, therefore, after preparing breakfast at this unusually early hour, went across to the back door of the Major's house. With the challenging in her hand, to borrow a nutmeg grater and gleaned the information that Mrs. Dominic's employer, poor master he could not be called, had gone off in a great hurry to the station early that morning with a gladstone bag and a portmanteau, the latter of which had been seen no more, though the Major had returned. So Mrs. Gashley produced the challenge, and having watched Miss Mapp off to the high street at half-past ten, Dominic and Gashley went together to her house to see if Withers could supply anything of importance, or, if not, a nutmeg grater. They were forced to be content with the grater, but poured over the challenge with Withers, and she having an errand to Diva's house, told Janet, who without further ceremony bounded upstairs to tell her mistress. Hardly had Diva heard that she plunged into the high street, and with suitable additions told Miss Mapp, Evie, Irene, and the Padre under promise in each case of the strictest secrecy. Ten minutes later, Irene had asked of the defenseless Mr. Hopkins, who was being Adam again, what he knew about it, and Evie, with her mouse-like gait that looked so rapid and was so deliberate, had the mortification of seeing Miss Mapp outdistance her and be admitted into the Poppet's house, just as she came in view of the front door. She rightly conjectured that, after the affair of the store cupboard in the garden room, there could be nothing of lesser importance than the duel, which could take that lady through those abhorred portals. Finally, at ten minutes past eleven, Major Flint and Captain Puffin were seen by one or two fortunate people, the morning having cleared up, walking together to the tram, and without exception, everybody knew that they were on their way to fight their duel in some remote hollow of the sand dunes. Miss Mapp had gone straight home from her visit to the Poppets, just about eleven, and stationed herself in the window where she could keep an eye on the houses of the duelists. In her anxiety to outstrip Evie and be the first to tell the Poppets, she had not waited to hear that they had both come back and knew only of the challenge and that they had gone to the station. She had already formed a glorious idea of her own as to what the history of the duel, past or future, was, and, intoxicated with emotion, had retired from the wordy fray to think about it, and, 
as already mentioned, to keep an eye on the two houses just below. Then there appeared in sight the padre, walking swiftly up the hill, and she had barely time under cover of the curtain to regain the table where her sweet chrysanthemums were pining for water when Withers announced him. He wore a furrowed brow, and quite forgot to speak either Scotch or Elizabethan English. A few rapid words made it clear that they both had heard the main outlines. "'A terrible situation,' said the padre. "'Dueling is in direct contravention of all Christian principles, and, I believe, of the civil law. The discharge of a pistol in unskillful hands may lead to deplorable results, and Major Flint, so one has heard, is an experienced duelist. That, of course, makes it even more dangerous.' It was at this identical moment that Major Flint came out of his house, and quee-hied cheerily to Puffin. Miss Mapp and the Padre, deep in these bloody possibilities, neither saw nor heard them. They passed together down the road and into High Street, unconscious that their every look and action was being more commented on than the epistle to the Hebrews. Inside the garden room, Miss Mapp sighed and bent her eyes on her chrysanthemums. Quite terrible, she said, and in our peaceful, tranquil tilling. Perhaps the duel has already taken place, and— and they've missed, said the Padre. They were both seen to return to their houses early this morning. By whom? asked Miss Mapp jealously. She had not heard that. By Hopkins, said he. Hopkins saw them both return. I shouldn't trust that man too much, said Miss Mapp. Hopkins may not be telling the truth. I have no great opinion of his moral standard. Why is that? This is no time to discuss the nudity of Hopkins, and Miss Mapp put the question aside. That does not matter now, dear Padre, she said. I only wish I thought the duel had taken place without accident. But Major Benji, I mean Major Flint's portmanteau, has not come back to his house. Of that I'm sure. What if they have sent it away to some place where they are unknown, full of pistols and things? Possible. Terribly possible, said the Padre. I wish I could see my duty clear. I should not hesitate to, well, to do the best I could induce them to abandon the murderous project. And what do you imagine was the root of the quarrel? "'I couldn't say, I'm sure,' said Miss Mapp. She bent her head over the chrysanthemums. "'Your distracting sex,' said he, with a moment's gallantry, "'is quite the cause of the quarrel. "'I've noticed that they both seem to admire Miss Irene very much.' Miss Mapp raised her head and spoke with great animation. "'Dear quaint Irene, I'm sure it has nothing whatever to do with it,' she said with the perfect truth. "'Nothing whatever!' There was no mistaking the sincerity of this, and the padre, tilling right to the marrow, instantly concluded that Miss Mapp knew what, or who, was the cause of all this unique disturbance, and as she bent her head again over the chrysanthemums and quite distinctly grew brick red in the face, he felt that delicacy prevented his inquiring any further. "'What are you going to do, dear Padre?' she asked in a low voice, choking with emotion. "'Whatever you decide will be wise and Christian. Oh, these violent men! Such babies, too!' The Padre was bursting with curiosity, but since his delicacy forbade him to ask any of the questions which effervesced like sherbet around his tongue, he propounded another plan. "'I think my duty is to go straight to the Major,' he said, "'who seems to be the principal in the affair, "'and tell him that I know all, and guess the rest,' he added. "'Nothing that I have said,' declared Miss Mapp in great confusion, "'must have anything to do with your guesses. "'Promise me that, Padre.' "'This intimate and fruitful conversation was interrupted "'by the sound of two pairs of steps just outside, "'and before Withers had time to say, "'Miss Plastow, Diva burst in. "'They have both taken the 1120 tram,' she said, "'and sank into the mayor's chair. "'Together?' asked Miss Mapp, feeling a sudden chill of disappointment at the thought of a duel with pistols trailing off into one with golf clubs. "'Yes, but that's a blind,' panted Diva. "'They were talking and laughing together. Sheer blind. Duel among the sand dunes.' "'Padre, it is your duty to stop it,' said Miss Mapp faintly. "'But if the pistols are in the portmanteau,' he began. 
"'What portmanteau?' screamed Diva, who hadn't heard about that. "'Darling, I'll tell you presently,' said Miss Mapp. "'That was only a guess of mine, Padre, but there's no time to lose.' "'But there's no tram to catch,' said the Padre, "'and it's gone by this time.' "'A taxi, then, Padre. Oh, lose no time.' "'Are you coming with me?' he said in a low voice. "'Your presence.' "'Better not,' she said. "'It might—better not,' she repeated. He skipped down the steps and was observed running down the street. "'What about the portmanteau?' asked the greedy diva. It was with strong misgivings that the padre started on his Christian errand, and had not the sense of adventure spiced it, he would have probably returned to his sermon instead, which was Christian too. To begin with, there was the ruinous expense of taking a taxi out to the golf links, but by no other means could he hope to arrive in time to avert an encounter that might be fatal. It must be said to his credit that— Though this was an errand distinctly due to his position as the spiritual head of Tilling, he rejected, as soon as it occurred to him, the idea of charging the hire of the taxi to church expenses, and as he whirled along the flat road across the marsh, the thing which chiefly buoyed up his drooping spirits and annealed his courage was the romantic nature of his mission. He no longer, thanks to what Miss Mapp had so clearly refrained from saying, he had the slightest doubt that she, in some manner that scarcely needed conjecture, was the cause of the duel he was attempting to avert. For years it had been a matter of unwearied and confidential discussion as to whether and when she would marry either Major Flint or Captain Puffin, and it was superfluous to look for any other explanation. It was true that she, in popular parlance, was getting on, but so, too, and at exactly the same rate, were the representatives of the United Services, and the sooner that two of the three of them got on, permanently, the better. No doubt some crisis had arisen, and inflamed with love, he intended to confide all this to his wife on his return. On his return, the unspoken words made his heart sink. What if he never did return, for he was about to place himself in a position of no common danger? His plan was to drive past the clubhouse, and then on foot, after discharging the taxi, to strike directly into the line of tumbled sand dunes which, remote and undisturbed, and full of large convenient hollows, stretched along the coast and above the flat beach. Any of those hollows, he knew, might prove to contain the duelists in the very act of firing and over the rim of each he had to pop his unprotected head. He, if in time, would have to separate the combatants, and who knew whether, in their very natural chagrin at being interrupted, they might not turn their combined pistols on him first, and settle with each other afterwards. One murder the more made little difference to desperate men. Other shocks, less deadly but extremely unnerving, might await him. He might be too late, and pop his head over the edge of one of these craters, only to discover it full of bleeding, if not mangled, bodies or there might be only one mingled body, and the other, unmingled, would pursue him through the sand dunes and offer him life at the price of silence. That, he painfully reflected, would be a very difficult decision to make. Luckily, Captain Puffin, if he proved to be the survivor, was lame. With a drawn face and agonized prayers on his lips, he began a systematic search of the sand dunes. Often his nerve nearly failed him, and he would sink panting among the prickly bents before he dared to peer into the hollow up the sides of which he had climbed. His ears shuddered at the anticipation of hearing from near at hand the report of pistols, and once a backfire from a motor passing along the road caused him to leap high in the air. The sands of these dunes were steep, and his shoes got so full of sand that from time to time, in spite of the urgency of his errand, he was forced to pause in order to empty them out. He stumbled in rabbit holes, he caught his foot in once his trousers and strands of barbed wire, the remnant of coast defenses in the Great War. He crashed among potsherds and abandoned kettles, but with a thoroughness that did equal credit to his wind and his Christian spirit, he searched a mile of perilous dunes from end to end, and peered into every important hollow. 
Two hours later, jaded and torn and streaming with perspiration, he came in the vicinity of the clubhouse to the end of his fruitless search. He staggered round the corner of it and came in view of the eighteenth green. Two figures were occupying it, and one of these was in the act of putting. He missed. Then he saw who the figures were. It was Captain Puffin, who had just missed his putt. It was Major Flint, who now expressed elated sympathy. "'Bad luck, old boy,' he said. "'Well, a jolly good match, and we have it.' "'Why, there's the Padre. Been for a walk? Join us in a round this afternoon, Padre. Blow your sermon!' End of chapter 5 Recording by Kelsey Molino.